6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of James, chapter 3, verses 13 through chapter 4. Verse 6, But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. And there again, we have the, uh, the, the root manifestation of the flesh is pride. And uh, the, the antidote for that is humility. And we get humility through God's grace, not by some feigned self-abasement. Uh, well, we talk about the world, the flesh, and the third one we listed before was the devil. The devil is the one that introduced pride. He's the one that introduced a contrary will to the will of God in the universe through his own pride. Saw Adam's arrival and saw to it that Adam and Eve fell through his deceit. But it was through his pride that he fell. We learned that from Isaiah 14. We've done this before, but it's probably important enough and fundamental enough that we should just take, let's just part quickly and refresh that. Isaiah, there's two passages that chronicle the career of Satan, his origin. And uh, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 are the two chapters, easy to remember, they're both a heptatic, they're both a multiple of seven. But uh, Isaiah uh, 14 is a passage that, um, in a primitive sense, is directed to uh, the king of Babylon, but clearly the language pierces beyond the immediate context and goes cosmic on us. (laughs) And uh, verses 12 through 17 are the classic passage on the origin of Lucifer. The Holy Spirit tells us in verse 12, How art thou, the the passage directed to uh, Lucifer, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of morning, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which is weak in the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart. That's where sin always starts. It's in the heart. The rest is just mechanics. It starts in the heart. Thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend unto heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation of the sides of the north. I will ascend upon the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. It's going to go on. It's kind of interesting. It doesn't say that he wants to be God. He wants to be like God. I have this conjecture in the back of my mind that when Adam was created, Satan saw him as a rival. A rival. Interesting. The first person singular. Boy, that should be a very cautious pronoun to use. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Pride. What's his destiny? Verse 15. Yet thou shalt be brought down to the shoal, to the sides of the pit. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, Is this the man who made the earth to tremble? Who did shake the kingdoms? Who made the world like a wilderness and destroyed its cities? Who opened not the house of his prisoners? Whew. Some prophecy in there, not only his destiny, but we see some other side effects here. Is this the man that caused the earth to tremble? Which did shake the kingdoms? Who made the world like a wilderness and destroyed its cities and opened not the house of his prisoners? Satan, the devil. He introduced pride and it's his chief, deceit is his chief weapon. 
1 Timothy 3, 6, and also Ephesians 4, 27, neither give place to the devil. Now, so how do we do all this? That sounds good, those of getting back to James here. We're down to verse 7. We're going to make it. We have three instructions from James as how to deal with this. First, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The word submit there, by the way, is a military term in the Greek. It means to get into your proper rank. Know your place. Get where you belong. Don't be a usurper, in other words. First, you submit yourself to God. Second, verse 8. Draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Purify meaning to make chaste. So you submit to God and draw close to Him, and He'll draw close to you. Verse 3, I mean, excuse me, the third uh, element is to humble yourselves before God. As follows, verse 9. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Well, that's a strange instruction. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into heaviness. What he means is sin is no laughing matter. We wink at that. We joke about it. We all fall into that trap. We need to repent of that when it happens. Sin is no laughing matter. God never winks at sin. There is no trivial sin in the Scripture. There's some obviously heavier than others, but there is still no trivial sin. God hates sin, and that's the problem. And we need to submit ourselves to Him, draw near to Him, and humble ourselves before Him. Turn your joy into heaviness. You want to know how spiritual you are? We're going to grow and grow in spirituality. Great. How do you measure it? How do you measure your spirituality? How much do you hate sin? When you hate sin the way God does, then you're getting closer, huh? Verse 10, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. Don't we love to sing that? Let's sing it with our hearts, though. God hates pride. Proverbs 6, we talked about that, 16 through 17. In Psalm 51, 17, David's famous prayer of repentance over Bathsheba. A broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Verse 11, speak not evil of one another, brethren. In other words, brothers, do not slander one another, is what it says. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judges his brother speaketh evil of the law, judges the law. He that thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. I don't know why it is that Christians always form their firing squads in circles. There are more newsletters, more web pages, more expose books written against the brethren by other brethren. And the last brethren should probably be in quotation marks. It's a commonly observed mystery by both secular and our Jewish observers. Christians seem to spend so much time nitpicking and libeling and slandering each other that it's a tragedy. The Jews disagree among themselves. They always say you've got two Jews, you've got three opinions. You know, they divide among themselves. But through thousands of years of trying to survive, they learn to close ranks. Their theological disputes tend to evaporate when there's a knock on the door. We don't do that. We got all kinds of Christians and good guys publishing to the open secular world all the uh, the real or imagined nits and nats of somebody who whatever. Anyway, moving on, verse twelve. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who art thou that judgest another? Now we get into another subject that's a, a shift here, but it's an important one. I'll try to do it so we can finish the chapter. I think we will. And that has to do with planning. There's a lot of 
overplanning in the minds of James, and yet many Christians overreact to James' injunctions. We're trying to see if we can't strike a balance here of what's going on. I want you to remember that Pharaoh was troubled by a series of bad dreams. And through the wisdom of God, as manifested through Joseph, God used those warnings of the impending famines for them to prepare themselves. Pharaoh had a, a series of dreams. Each one, the idioms were different, but each one basically had the, the idea that there were going to be seven good years and seven bad years. And Joseph, the wisdom of God, now that's the knowledge. The wisdom was, let's use the good years to prepare for the bad years. And that changed the course of, you know, and Joseph became the prime minister of Egypt, put in a 20% tax. Very skillful administration that uh, made Egypt, made it very effective. So, now, how do we apply that? Where is the safest place for you to be? Everybody, because of all the various threats on the horizon, people coming to Egypt, where shall I flee to? You know, shall I, shall I leave Manhattan and come to Coeur d'Alene? No, 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 no. Coeur d'Alene's cold in the winter. We don't tell, we don't tell them how nice, we keep it secret. Um, <laughs> no, no, seriously, people say, Chuck, where shall I go? The answer to where you should flee is obvious. Where is the Holy Spirit leading you to minister? The safest place in the world is to be right where God wants you, wherever that is. You don't want to be anywhere else. And unless he calls you clearly, he wants you to bloom where you're planted. Now, many people fear, we say, you should follow the will of God. You get nervous because you don't really realize that God's will is better for you than you have any idea. Your unwillingness to, to accept the will of God is your doubt that his interest is in your interest. It's a lack of trust. Psalm 33.11 says, The counsel of the Lord standeth forever, the thoughts of his heart to all generations. His counsel, his will comes from where? Where does God's will come from? From his heart. What's God's heart towards you? Boy, I love Jeremiah 29. I can remember, I was just beginning to sense the dark valley that was coming. And it happened that I attended a graduation ceremony up at a, one of our daughters was a, at Monta Vista Christian Academy up in Northern California. And they had a graduation ceremony, but... The graduation ceremony, they had a, a verse, a life verse up on the stage. And Jeremiah 29, 11. And I, they thought it was for the graduating class. But I remember almost weeping because I knew that was for me. Because I knew what was forthcoming, which took us through our valley. But For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, plans for your welfare, and not for harm, to give you a future and a hope. And indeed he has. Verse 13, Go now, ye that say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain. He's talking about here people who make plans. See, but our, our plans need to be tempered with the realization that only God really knows the future. That doesn't mean we shouldn't plan and forecast, but we should do so with caution and with a, with a footnote, as God wills, as you'll put out here. Verse 14, Whereas ye know not what you'll be on the morrow, what is your life? It is even a vapor that appear for a little time and then vanish the way. Now, see, what we're going to deal now with is the foolishness of ignoring the will of God by making our own plans in contrast to His. That's what he's talking about. And there's going to be four elements of that foolishness. The first is the brevity of our life. And boy, you could make up a dozen references from Psalms and elsewhere. I would pick a few from Job here. Job 7, 6. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and are spent without hope. A few verses later, as the cloud is consumed and vanished away, so he that goeth down to the grave shall come up no more. Verse, Job 8 9. For we are but of yesterday and know nothing because our days upon the earth are a shadow. Job 9 25. Now my days are swifter than a post. They flee away and they see no good. Now his, his post, postmen were faster than ours, I think, because he's, he's trying to make a point of being swift, but I won't, I won't beat up on that one. Um, 
Now my days are swifter than opposed. They flee away and they see no good. See, life is but a quick snapshot. A relative of mine pointed out, you don't grow old. You wake up one day and discover you are, you know. We count our years each birthday, right? That's unscriptural because God says we should number our days that we apply our hearts to wisdom, Psalm 90.12. Now, it's interesting. I used to use this on executives when I was in that world. If you say, uh, you, know, uh, you know, how many years do you think you have left? You can actuarially make a calculation. You know, you figure, well, 70 years, and I'm, if a guy is 40 years old, I've got 30 years left, or whatever the numbers are, okay? What I used to do, that's abstract. See, if, I, if you think, gee, I've got 20, 30, 40 years, whatever, in front of me, that's an abstraction. Nothing concrete about that. I used to ask him, how many weekends you got left? The way I used to put it is, hey, Bernie, you got uh, about 1,500 weekends left. <laughs> what? You know. Well, do your own arithmetic, you know. And what you do is take uh, three score and ten. That's the scripture, but roughly 70. And, and an insurance agency, that's a good estimate, 70, you know, 70 years still. Three score and ten. Subtract your age from that and multiply by 52. I'd multiply 50 to keep the arithmetic simple. But, uh, you know, so if you're 30, you've got about 2,000 weekends left, no problem. <gasps> 2,000, you know, that, that sounds kind of finite, you know. I see him a few years later and say, oh, what do you got, about uh, 1,100 left? You know. I met this one financier many years later, I think seven or eight lawsuits later, uh, not by me, but federal lawsuits, uh, and uh, haven't run into him. And he came up to me. I've got 900, don't I, Chuck? I mean, he's been counting, you know. <laughs> he remembered that silly crack when we were just, you know, in a, in a boardroom context, kidding things around. So our life is short, very brief. It's important to us because it's in front of us, and yet it's trivial compared to eternity, and yet our eternity is determined by how we handle what God has put before us in, these, in this brief span. See, what we, should, we can make plans, but what we, should, what we ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live or do this or that. And it should be the constant attitude of our lives, of our heart. And a lot of verses, I'll spray that for a short review here. How do we determine the will of God? The will of God is a living relationship between the God and believer. It's not a, it's not a definitive thing like you, you know, read X, Y, or Z. It's a relationship. The will of God is a relationship. And because it's a relationship, it itself is a growing experience. Colossians 1.9 says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. It's a growth experience, in other words. And he wants us to understand his will. Ephesians 5.17, Wherefore be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. We must also, we're instructed to prove his will. Romans 12, 2, her book, Be Transformed, is a, a, a development of the first two verses of Romans 12. Verse 2 of Romans 12, 1 and 2 is, Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may what? Prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You are to prove his will. Now, the Greek verb there means to prove by experience. You learn and you, you prove his will by experiencing it. It's an interactive, growing thing. You work at it. Now, people keep asking, how do I determine God's will for my life? If they're announcing that way, they're admitting that they never tried it. John seven seventeen. if any man will do my will, he shall know of the doctrine and so forth. And Matthew eleven twenty nine. The whole idea of God's will is to take that which you know is his will and obey it. And he will incrementally reveal more. You're grow, it's a growth path. It's a, it's a baby step, you know, crawl, walk, run situation. 
And of course, the secret, we said, selfish people are never happy people. The secret of a happy life is to delight in duty. The secret of a happy life is many people find fulfillment by serving others in hospitals or in elderly homes or whatever in some ministry because that's fulfilling. And it seems like a, you know, a strange thing to people who haven't experienced it to understand that. But that's the secret. Of it can be the mother for her family, whatever. But the ultimate thing, of course, is to delight in your duties to God. That's the ultimate happiness. Work is a kind of prayer when you're home. If you're a tenant farmer, killing somebody else's feet, that's, that's sort of the brow stuff. But you're at home, that's a form of prayer. Psalm 119, verse 54 says, Thy statutes have been my songs in the house of my pilgrimage. And if God can't rule, by the way, He overrules. If God can't rule, He'll overrule. And His chastening of you is evidence of His love. And that's a whole other thing. But the other things that cause us, should give us caution when we plan is not just the brevity of life, it is the complexities of life. Life is complicated. I don't have to develop that, you understand that. They're the uncertainties of life. Everybody likes to quote uh, uh, Luke 12. Boast uh, not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. That doesn't mean you don't plan the futurity of today's decisions. Planning is not forecasting. Planning is to deal with the futurity of, day, of today's decisions. If you're managing an inventory, you need to plan. And this has often caused many Christians not to plan. Big mistake. Uh, Thomas Kempis says, uh, Man proposes, but God disposes. Solomon said, The lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing there is of the Lord. Proverbs 16.33. What that tells you is there's no such thing as randomness. And it really fascinates me to discover there are two concepts in mathematics that don't exist. One is infinity. We use it mathematically. But if you look through a telescope, you know the universe has an end. It's, not, it's finite, not infinite. That's embarrassing. It has all kinds of problems cosmologically. That's why you get to the Big Bang models and all that stuff. You go the other way, in the, in the microscopic sense, you think that if you take a line and cut it in half, whatever's left you can cut in half again. Whatever's left you can, you think you can do that forever. No, you can't. When you get down to 10 to the minus 33 centimeters, it no longer exists. The universe is digital. It's quant- That's what they mean by quantum physics. Because you can't infinitely divide length, mass, time, or energy. Divide an hour into 60 minutes, divide 60 minutes into 60 seconds, take a second, start cutting it up in small pieces. When you get down to 10 to the minus 43 seconds, you are, you, you're, you're over. Below that, it not only is no longer an object, it's all local. All particles in the universe they now discover are immediately connected. It's impossible. It's a whole different model of the universe because uh, uh, that's what they mean by quantum physics. And, uh, and Neil, Neil, uh, Niels Bohr said, uh, anyone that isn't shocked by quantum physics doesn't understand it. That's why one of the physicists committed suicide. He couldn't handle it, what, the implications of all of that. But it works. And it works. That's why we have the advances we have. But the point is... There is no such thing as infinity, up or down. There's another issue, randomness. We talk about random chance. We have random, we have random variables in mathematical equations, but we now learn that there is no real randomness. That's what's led to the whole, a new field of mathematics called chaos theory. So they call it. But basically is an elaboration of the, is a, of the fact that there is nothing that is truly random. Well, that's what the Bible said all along. Okay? Anyway, and of course the last thing is the frailty of man. He says, verse 16, but, but ye rejoice in your boastings, all such rejoicing is evil, if you're rejoicing in your boastings. Now, there's a caveat to all of this that I also want to say, and that is that this all can be easily misapplied. It can be a cop-out from responsibility. I'm not going to plan, you know, the Lord's going to take care of me. You know, does the Lord brush your teeth every morning? In other words, there's certain things you do to take care of yourself. And if the Lord tells, tells, you, tells Pharaoh through Joseph, there's going to be seven years of planning and seven years of famine, oh-ho, we better do something about it, Okay? There's a lot of freeway traffic, and you're across the street. I do suggest you look around and plan, okay? I should have 
I should have really opened with the story about the rooster and the chicken. I'm going to cross the road, right? Rooster said, the chicken's going to cross the road. The rooster says, if you are, i got two pieces of advice. Do it quickly and lay it on the line. Okay. So I'm trying to do that. Okay. Okay. Christian walk is not a flight from prudence. Scripture says the prudence see danger and take refuge, that simple keep going and suffer for it. And it says that several times. And Jesus also said, Which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? There is an appropriate role of planning. And yet it's all done if God wills. That's the point that James is making. It's not a flight from prudence or, or rational management. What we do need to do is seek the Lord's will in everything we undertake, however trivial, however we should seek the Lord's will in it. And if you disobey the Lord's will, it's uh, verse 17, Therefore to him that doeth, uh, knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. So if you know what the Lord's will is in your life and don't do it, that's sin. Well, what is the Lord's will? There's probably a lot of things you're not sure of. But I can give you a list of ten things it's quite clear on back in Exodus 20. Okay, and there are other places that you know you can quickly determine a number of places in your life where you know, and you start obeying the Lord's will. The rest He'll reveal to you. Now, the big problem, of course, the last question I'd like to answer, then we'll wrap it up. Why do people deliberately disobey God? You can understand people who don't believe God, you know, atheists. That's a whole other problem. We're not talking about Christians. Why do Christians deliberately obey God? For one thing, is a worldly wisdom, and I'm going to use as an expression of that, a poem that most of us had to learn when we were in school. And it's extolled as a great poem. It's called Invictus by William Ernest Henley. As a piece of poetry, it's quite elegant, but listen carefully what he's saying. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced or cried aloud. Under the bludgings of circumstance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged the punishments, the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Quite a moving poem. But it's wrong. It's the source of an attitude that leads to disaster. And Dorothea Day wrote a parody of this poem that I just thought we'd close on. It's called My Captain. Out of the light that dazzles me, bright as the sun from pole to pole, I thank the God I knew to be for Christ, the conqueror of my soul. Since his, the sway of circumstance, I would not wince nor cry aloud under the rule that which men call chance. My head, with joy, is humbly bowed. Beyond this place of sin and tears, that life with him and his the aid, despite the menace of the years, keeps and shall keep me unafraid. I have no fear, though straight the gate. He cleared the punishments from the scroll. Christ is the master of my fate. Christ is the captain of my soul. Praise God. Dorothea Day. Let's close with a word of prayer. Stand for a word of prayer. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we praise you that your wisdom is available to us for the asking. We thank you, Father, that you have provided our wisdom in Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Father, that you have provided your wisdom in your word that is here in our arms. 
And we thank you too, Father, that we have a 24-hour hotline to your throne room, that your wisdom is available for the asking. But Father, we would indeed ask that you would help us to walk moment by moment in Christ. Help us, Father, to reverence you, to fear you as a continual moment-by-moment attitude. Father, we would ask that you would draw us ever closer into fellowship in our private devotions. We thank you, Father, for these opportunities to assemble. We thank you, Father, for the teachings that are available in such abundance in our land. But above all, Father, we thank you that we can have time with you privately, personally, daily. That we indeed might be ever conscious that you're an unseen participant in every deal we make, every hand that we shake, every commitment we utter, every opportunity that presents itself. We pray, Father, for discernment that we might, among those opportunities, discern those that represent your mandate, for we know that not all opportunities are mandate, Father. But we would ask through your Holy Spirit, you'd give us discernment. We pray, Father, through your Holy Spirit that you would illuminate our path, that we might indeed pursue, pursue boldly that which you have for us in the days ahead. We pray, Father, you'd help each of us to discover that specific will, that specific mission, that specific ministry that you would have of each of us, that we each might be more fruitful for your kingdom, that we each might be more pleasing in thy sight, as we commit ourselves into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we do pray. Amen. You've been listening to 6640 the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of James. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.